0: So, hello, welcome to the Doomer Optimism podcast. This is my first time hosting. I'm going Godward recording for Doomer Optimism, and I have with me today the pleasure of talking with Brian Fink. Brian, welcome to the Thank podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be many here with you.
0: you do. do you do a lot of podcasts?
1: Thousands, really. Thousands. And my time is so filled with them. I rarely <laughs> have time for for much else. Oh no, I've been on, I would say, a half a dozen or so in in the last year, maybe, maybe year and a half. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd say yeah. that like that. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. Well, I um know Brian through some writing that he's done in the past on education. Um, I got to see some of his work that was published. Um, I've kept up with him through Twitter. You can find him on Twitter. And uh, Brian has a Substack that he writes from. But most of all, Brian is a father to five, husband, goat herder, farmer, bit of a homesteader, and yeah. teacher, you teach literature.
1: I actually teach religion and history to, okay. to middle schoolers. Yep,
0: but you're very versed in literature.
1: Yeah, that's why I studied my undergraduate yeah. degree yeah. was in English.
0: Yep, right. Um, so Brian is just a really unique person in that he's kind of living in, in multiple worlds. He's he's in the education world. He has a literary perspective. He also has the homesteading farmer perspective, and Brian also has. A really deep insight and profound understanding of the human condition, of the way the world works, how we've arrived at this at this present cultural moment, and he just is a really good fit for the doomer optimism crowd. So, I've got some deep, deep <laughs> pressing questions for Brian today. So hopefully he'll be able to to answer them for us. Um, you know, I think the doomer optimism crowd are we're trying to 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 evaluate things to imagine how we want to change things, where we can impact. A lot of us are focused on on local influence, our our most immediate sphere of influence um, and kind of what the good life looks like. Um, So Brian, first question, um, what would you say the good life is and and how is the good life cultivated?
1: Well, The simplest answer i I would give is probably the good life consists of conforming oneself to reality. And it's a very simple and short answer. and and yet you could spend a lifetime thinking about it, talking about it, and and trying to to live it. what does it what does that actually mean? In part, it means that there's an objective reality, there's the way that things are, the, the way that existence is, despite my being here or not. And my presence, my my own existence, has in some way the ability to shape that or to, to interact with that. But living the good life, I think, Primarily means understanding reality as it is and then conforming my life to it, the way that I act, the way that I think, the way that I choose, uh, the relationships that I have is all geared toward living in reality and living according to what is real, not according primarily to what I think or my opinions, certainly not primarily my emotions uh, but to what actually is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah I know that you I know that you are a goat farmer goat goat herder.
1: Yeah husbandry is a strange word it's the one that fits best but no one really uses it anymore the idea of animal husbandry Mm -hmm. and but you can't husbanding sounds it's a strange verb to use uh, but I'm not I mean to be a goat herder I feel like I would have to have more than 10 or 11, which That's I do. Correct. I think we have 10 or 11 right now. Mm-hmm. A herder, it would, I would feel like I would have a whole flock, you know, 50 or 100, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, we do have domesticated animals on our little farm. We have a, a 16 acre farm and we have milk goats mm-hmm. and layer hens and we raise feeder pigs and we have some barn cats and, mm-hmm. and a sweet dog named Zelly who looks out for us.
0: So, how would you say that just in in that sphere of your life, in the the raising goats, the being the husbandry, the animal yeah. husbandry? Uh, forgive my cat. I've I've thought that she was gonna. She's. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, to do more optimism, people. There's a cat in the background. Um, how would you say that 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 particular role has helped you to conform to reality?
1: More than I ever imagined that it would,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because when you take care of other things that are dependent on you, you are required to sacrifice your own wants, needs, and desires for the good of those things. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And the more dependent those things are on you, combined with, uh, let's say, the simplicity of the creature, Mm Uh, the greater the extent to which you might be called to, to give yourself and your time. And that's been one of the most beautiful things and also I would say the hardest thing about having a hobby farm or being a homesteader. You are absolutely grounded, absolutely. And grounded in the sense that you don't go a lot of places for very long. If you have a cat let's say, just to use one example of a domesticated animal that many people have, or let's say a pet dog, and you wanted to have someone, you wanted to go on vacation, and you wanted to have someone take care of your animal. There are simpler ways to do it, but boarding is obviously one possibility, but you might just have friends who you you could say, could you just come over once a day, let the dog out a couple times a day, let the dog out for a few minutes, make sure the dog has food and water. Uh, We've never had a house cat, but I imagine, you know, you would ask someone to come over, check in on the cat, but assume that, generally speaking, uh, that that labor is going to be pretty pretty simple. Having these domesticated animals means that every single day, twice a day, I have to go out and into the barn, and in particular, because of the dairy goats, they you have to milk them every day or they stop giving milk. And it's one thing to say, could you come over and, you know, let the dog out and pour some food in a bowl, make sure, you know, throw the ball for a few minutes. And it's another thing to say, could you come and milk these goats um, at, at five in the morning and five at night. And there are three of them that you have to milk and you need to know who they are. And they're actually, not very friendly. So if they don't know you, they're not coming up into the milk stand. So good luck with that. They're faster than you. You're not going to be able to catch them. Uh, you could trap them, but that that might take half the day. Um, so the short of it is, Jocelyn, we don't we don't go very many places. And I was actually thinking about it earlier today, thinking about whether or not that seems like a burden, or it seems oppressive but i have found it since since my wife and i started into this thing shortly after we got married 9 years ago that it has been the most liberating of things mostly because it it makes my life really simple mm. and and i dare i say ordinary which is a word that maybe is terrifying for a lot of people they wouldn't necessarily want to describe their lives as ordinary because that seems unsexy mm-hmm. or unfulfilling but i love my ordinary life and in part because and we've talked about this before one of the goals of my life and and the the goal of our marriage my wife and i is to have an ordered life mm-hmm. to order the things that we do to have reason good reason for the choices that we make and as i said before the the time that we spend and how we spend it. And so you eliminate a lot of things. Anytime you make a choice, you're always making a choice between two things. Hopefully it's two good things and you're choosing between two goods or maybe many goods. But there's always that act of discriminating, choosing between one thing and another. And the beauty about living on a, a hobby farm is that your choices are limited. hmm so that you don't feel every single day like you're walking down the the cereal aisle at a major grocery Mm -hmm. store where there's 500 different options Mm -hmm. and 20 new ones and 50 that are about to go away. And so you have this overwhelming pressure to make a really important decision from an unlimited number of options and you find yourself paralyzed because well, I really love cinnamon toast crunch, but look at this new thing, this new Reese's Pieces peanut butter thing. Mm -hmm. Is that going to be good? Will I be fulfilled? So having a hobby farm essentially means that you have two or three options and, and they're not detestable, nor are they the, the epitome of breakfast cereals, but they're good and reliable and nutritious and, um they won't upset your stomach
0: help conform you to reality
1: that's right yes that's right yeah i i I think that's it and the 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 beauty about living on a hobby farm is that it's demanded of you whether you kind of whether you want to or not the the only alternative would be to abandon the project altogether whether it be dairy goats whether it be the garden that we keep uh to to not raise layer hens for instance you could abandon that and then you would be free to do more things. I would be free to do more things. Mm -hmm. And yeah, okay. Sometimes I feel like I wish I had more time, but then I think, what would I do with that time? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Watch TV, scroll, scroll Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, What, what, what would be the thing? Yes. And my wife likes to say, you could spend more time with your children, but they're out, they're out with me. They, Mm -hmm. they, they love, they love being on the farm. Mm -hmm. It's actually, it reminds me of a story when our daughter, who is now eight, she was probably three, maybe. And we went over to a friend's house and uh, they have this big bay window that looks out on their backyard. And then they've got some sort of timber behind that, like a, um, some, some timber that goes back a little bit. And she was kind of staring out the window and looking and for a long time. And I, went, I thought, oh, it's just beautiful. She must just be looking out at the trees. And, and um, at, at one point, I finally went up to her and I said, Edith, what are what are you looking at? Are you, what, are you looking at the trees? Are you looking at the, what are you looking at? And she sat for a moment and then she said, Dad, Dad, where are there goats? I don't see any goats. And it never occurred to her that, we might be the only people we know who have goats. We might be the only people we know who live this kind of life. Mm -hmm. And so for her, it's the most natural thing in the world that Mm -hmm. we have chores in the morning and chores at night. And Mm -hmm. part of the evening is spent in the barn and straining milk and collecting eggs. And, uh, and that's, that's what my kids see as, Mm -hmm. as normal, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even though in the world it's, Let's say far from it, you yeah. know.
0: That's really special. You know, I, I've talked about this before and I was actually reflecting on this today. Um, and just in terms of, of raising children, technology screens, and I, I think you and I maybe have even talked about this or, or maybe I've read something, but that you've written. I feel like technology kind of robs children of any sort of like childhood experience where memories are created and things that they can revisit when they're older and they need something that grounds them. There's not really anything there um, whenever their lives are spent engaging with technology. Um, But it sounds like, you know, what you're providing is something that creates a foundation in reality. Yeah. That, that will sustain them whenever they are older and.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. They, as they get a little bit older they realize the delimiting factor of of being on a on a on a hobby farm they don't necessarily get to do the things that well maybe i shouldn't say that that they they don't get to do the things that their friends get to do um because in truth the other part of living the good life is being surrounded by people who are trying to do the same thing mm-hmm. or who are like minded in their own way and and my wife and I have been really intentional about that as well—who uh, we spend our time with, and how we spend that time together. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not not to say that all of our friends are, are homesteaders and off the grid, you know, mm-hmm. or any anything like that. But but by and large, we try to spend time with families who are trying to cultivate what's real in their own family and they're trying to create a, a culture of of groundedness of the importance of family of call it traditional values i guess if you want although i don't know that that's the best description of it um, but that's really that's really important too because the other really difficult thing and this is one one area where if i could give any word of advice to people who are thinking, man, I would love to start this thing. I'd love to get some animals. And, you know, I always tell people to start with chickens. They're the easiest Mm -hmm. I think to start with, and they're the easiest to lose, you know? So if something goes wrong and a fox gets in and kills all your chickens, I mean, it's, it's, it's unpleasant for sure, for sure. But it's, it's not as devastating as losing a, a Jersey cow, Mm -hmm. right? Not as devastating as, as like when one of our, our goats gets ill and we have to um, dispatch, as it were. Um, but at the same time, people think I, it, it's often idealized, this idea of homesteading, hobby farming, we get off the grid, we can raise our own food, we can be one with nature and one with the land. And uh, you have, in one sense, a kind of ironic situation where you have a community of people who are trying to do it right? Uh, on many different levels, whether it's growing food or raising animals or just trying to be generally more self-sufficient, but it's, it can be very isolating because you, you're there, you, you, the work that you have to do, the free time that you have, your hobby, if you want to call it that is in your backyard, right? You're not going to a golf course or out sailing, um, you're not, let's say, traveling. If that's something that that you you spend your free time wanting to do, uh, you're home, mm-hmm. and you have to be home every night to take care of your animals and the other people in your in your community of friends. They all have to be home at night too to take care of their animals. So it's an interesting it's an interesting tension mm-hmm. to to live that that way. Um, but I think, as you said what's the alternative? And it's so sad to see in so many ways that the most important and formative years of people's lives, these little kids are being spent in a kind of passive, uh, in a kind of trance. Yeah. 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 That's a good way to describe it. Nothing permanent, Mm -hmm. uh, nothing to hold on to. Nothing real. Well, no kid is going to, no kid is going to, grow up and say, I can't, I remember when I was a kid, I remember that those, those long days I spent playing Minecraft and, Mm -hmm. and they will look back, I think, and regret Mm -hmm. having done so. Yes. Or, or they may not even have any memories to reflect on Mm -hmm. because there's nothing that touches the soul. I mean, there's no, there's nothing on YouTube that's, that's leaving a mark on your soul the way that, traveling with your family to the Grand Canyon might, or having a, a visceral experience of watching, you know, um, baby goats be born, right. or or even just the, the daily ordinary event of having dinner together mm-hmm. as a family, let's say. Uh, those things leave an imprint, you know, yeah. that the way that technology, or at least the the way that technology is used now and and across the board wouldn't.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, something I wanted to ask you. You kind of talked about the challenges that you experience with homesteading, just the lack of freedom. You know, if you want to say that, I mean, freedom is a whole word that right. we could unpack. Right. Yeah. You know, what is freedom really? Um, yeah. yeah. So. Your, you know, your inability to just kind of move about in the world in a way that's leisurely because you have responsibility. So that would be a bigger challenge that you experience.
1: Sure. Um,
0: what are some of the successes that you've experienced in terms of just character development, shaping mm. you as a person, shaping you as a family? We talked a little bit about what your children are getting to experience. Um, but yeah. what would you say in terms of just personal success? It doesn't have to be material. It can be a character sure. um, yeah. formation that you're experiencing um, with homesteading, what could you say about that?
1: Yeah, that's a great, great question. I will say off the off the top, the way I'm doing hobby farming is not materially successful. I will tell you that from the beginning, there are other there are other ways that other people do it and have found at least some form of material success. Our goal is to break even, so to be able to continue to raise animals and grow our own food and to be able to do so in a way that doesn't have a, a heavy financial cost to it. Um, so that's our goal. And it, you know, it's, it's like any other hobby you choose how you want to spend your free time and how you want to spend your extra money.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: we spend our free time and our extra money doing this. There are so many other things you could do and, depending on what your interests are and depending on what your gifts are, that could take you any number of places. Uh, I think the difference between many hobby or many forms of, of hobby and leisure is an interesting word uh, that, that that's wrapped up in a lot of other things, but uh, there is a demand, as I mentioned, there is a demand placed on your time and placed on, on your freedom or your, your ability to, to make a decision on a whim, to be spontaneous. I'm too old for spontaneous. I don't like spontaneous, you know? And maybe that's just me being kind of cranky and and, um, and being a doomer, if, if that's... Him. I asked my wife today, because I was going through some of the questions that you were going to... You were thinking about asking, are you an optimist or a doomer? And my wife, without hesitating, said, well, by nature, you're a doomer. And I was like, no, you're absolutely right. It's true. It's true, but uh, but the I would say the difference between homesteading and other other hobbies is that um, that homesteading demands change of you in a way that I don't know. I mean, you can improve, you can improve on your golf game for sure, and <clears throat> you know, you, sailing takes far more skill um, <clears throat> than I could probably muster but it is a kind of disciplined order of the daily life and it's helped me i know in a a particular way just order my life more clearly and to be intentional about the things that i do it forced me to start going to bed earlier and wake up earlier which i think everyone should do uh as a matter of health, mm-hmm. physical health, mental health, uh, nothing, nothing really good happens after about 11 o'clock at night. Nothing good across the board. <clears throat> it's physically demanding, so that's helpful. I don't ever have to worry about counting my steps. Um, I do exercise with uh, with a group of guys, but that's more for fraternity and community than it is for, let's say, being ready for... Bikini season, you know, um, there's, uh, there's also a a kind of direct connection between making and and using my hands and producing something that you end up recognizing the value of things. Uh, you know, a simple example is when, you know, one of the, one of the chickens steps on one of the eggs that's in the layer box. And you're like, come on, man. Do you know how much work it took me to get you to lay that egg? All right. Okay. I understand. Right. That's right. Exactly. Um, Or when we make a cheese from our milk and the process uh, can take two or three or four or five days, depending on the kind of cheese that you make. Uh, and then you have that cheese, and it's in the mold, and you know it's it's aging. We age our cheese for three months, usually at least, if not more. and then when you when you eat that cheese, it's it's a whole different experience than you would otherwise have, I think, from even buying a similar kind of cheese at the store,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not just because, oh, this is healthy or but just because of the discipline that was required and the knowledge that was required to to do it, um, so it's helped me. Uh, let's say it's helped me be more attentive to detail, and I, I think, in a strange way, it's helped me, as a matter of of formation, become more connected with nature, as mm-hmm. as tree hugger ish as that sounds, you know, because the more time you spend, especially with the goats. I would say chickens, I love them, but they can come and go. But the the more time you spend with goats, you just learn their personalities and you learn when they're not acting like they normally would, even in subtle ways. Mm. And it might be because, excuse me, they might be in heat or, or, um, sorry, they might be in heat or they might be sick or there might be, you know, a possum in the corner of the barn and the more time you spend i think i have become more sensitive to the natural order of creation yeah so yeah Yeah. um yeah
0: so so in those ways yes forming your character i want to pull up my questions here um so i want to go i want to go down kind of a path that's going to veer in a a few different directions what would you say well first of all let Hmm. me ask you what is your kind of doomer take on the present cultural moment? Like on society, on the world. All the way from the, from the local level to I don't know how how big how far you want to go out, but but what's your take? What's your doomer take?
1: Well, I, my my wife was right when she just said by nature I tend to I tend to be more skeptical and pessimistic by nature um, and so it's very easy for me to see the way in which the current cultural moment is heading nowhere good fast across almost every spectrum of civilization, from the the health, the physical health of of the west to of course, politics, education, um, the family, uh, community, uh, and and all the effects that are downstream of that—things like addiction, and infidelity, and uh, uh, crime. Um, so, so it, it it's easy, I would say for me by nature to sort of look out and say, nothing good is here. Nothing good to be found. Why am I even bothering with this? Um, Why am I plugging away at what I hope is a good for, let's say my wife and children or my students or my friends? Uh, Or why am I bothering to plan long-term because this is all going to be gone soon, either as a result of, you know, war or a civil unrest. Um, and I'll tell you what, the longer you spend on Twitter, the more pessimistic you get. So it's it's much better uh, for me to spend less and less time there. Um, that said, hope springs eternal. And because I recognize without any ambiguity, that this is not the end, that this is not the place where all the things that are supposed to be good will end up being good, that all of the desires of my heart that cannot be fulfilled here really tell me more than anything else that I'm not made for this world, that have tremendous hope because there isn't anything in the world as bad as it gets that can take away the the eternal promise and uh my wife asked is this, is this doomer optimism thing is this a religious thing do you, they talk about religion and i said i think they talk about everything and she said why well, are you allowed and i said i'm going to talk about whatever i want i guess they can just edit it out later or say well we were going to have this guy on oh, but you say whatever
0: you want to yeah. say we interview yeah. people all across yeah we did um we we interviewed um a couple of women um catholic ladies who yeah. um translated out of old english um I cannot remember the name of the poem. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, girls. That I can't remember. But um, it was about the rude. Um, the dream.
1: The dream of the rude.
0: Yes, the dream of the rude. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it was beautiful. We, yeah, yeah, it was a beautiful poem. They translated it out of old English, and yeah. it was absolutely. I think they did it for first things. First things. They did it for.
1: I think so. That's no, right.
0: the lamp. Matthew. Wolfe. Oh, yep.
1: Yeah. That's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um.
0: So really yeah. beautiful. So no, we we cover everything. So you say whatever yeah. you yeah. want to say. Yes.
1: Well, that's exactly it. I that that there's nothing that can there's nothing that can ultimately lead me to despairing about existence because I'm destined for another world and that's where I've placed all of my eggs and it doesn't mean that everything's going to be great here sunshiny or otherwise no probably just the opposite not just because of the state of affairs of let's say secular culture but because if you choose to be a follower of christ you can expect that things aren't necessarily going to go the way that you might imagine they would and in fact you're actually blessed if they don't if if things are always going the way that you imagine they should and you're not running into any opposition based on how you're choosing to live as a follower of Christ, then you're doing something wrong. You've adopted a a kind of secular form of of Christianity, let's say, where you've bought into the concept that religion is the thing that makes people feel good about themselves, or it's a a kind of therapy that allows them to deal with their problems by offloading them onto some invisible force. um, And you choose the kind of Christianity that, lets you continue to live exactly how you want while also feeling good about everything that you're doing. That's just, it's not how it works. All you have to do is open the Bible and, and, and follow the life of Christ to see that, that quite the opposite is the case. So many times when you encounter Christ in the scriptures and he's encountering someone else, the, the summative statement that he makes is you need to change your life and you need to change your life probably in the opposite direction that it's currently going. So once you accept that and that becomes the lens through which that becomes the lens through which you view life itself, then come what may, come whatever may. It's going to be fine. It could be horrible. It could be as as violent and bloody and horrific as you could imagine, but it's going to be fine uh, because Saint Teresa of, of Avila once was once asked, and I may get the quotation wrong, but they she was talking about suffering. I don't. Know, she was. That's not, not like she was interviewed because you know they didn't do the interviews back then. But she wrote something about suffering, essentially saying that compared with eternity, the the worst suffering in this life is. Is equivalent to to one bad night in in a in a cheap hotel, or the equivalent of that. Compared to eternity, all the suffering in the world is like one bad night's sleep in a, in an unfamiliar place.
0: That's that's so comforting. Um, it makes me think about kind of the next thing I wanted to ask um, it, about suffering mm. and the role of suffering in our character formation, in kind of living the good life, that yeah. there is an element of suffering that that kind of leads to, leads us to be who we ought to be. Yeah. Um, and there's an, a, a type of suffering that, that just leads to greater destruction. Um, and I guess I would just ask what you think the role is of suffering in the good life.
1: Right. And so much of it, I'll tell you, so much of it comes down to how you define your terms, right? How you define the good life, how you define suffering, how you define freedom. Um, But I think given a kind of shared definition, the Aristotle talks about virtue as a kind of exercising of the faculties of the human person. And he means exercising literally. And if any human being has ever exercised before to try and lose weight or to try to gain strength or uh, to, to try to maintain health, if it doesn't hurt, and I don't mean getting yourself injured, but if, if it doesn't involve a real level of stress uh, asserted onto the muscles or onto the lungs, then nothing will change. So the same can be said of of the good life, which I think uh, Aristotle says that happiness turns out to be the activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. So if the good life is the fullness of what it means to be human, of a flourishing of what it means to be human, then that doesn't happen by accident or chance. And it doesn't happen because of things that are external A virtuous person can be virtuous in the best and the worst of circumstances. And in fact, only a virtuous person can be virtuous in the best and the worst of circumstances. It it can't depend primarily on external forces. There has to be some internal reality that is operating all of the time, despite what's going on around. So to get there requires work, mental work. Physical work and and like Aristotle says the the exercising of of the, the the faculties of the human person which are the exercising of the intellect and the exercising of the will and so he says at one point he's talking about how a person grows in virtue and he talks about the distinction between intellectual virtue and moral virtue and he says intellectual virtue um, requires experience, and time, whereas moral virtue is the product of habit. So we become just by doing just acts, temperate by doing temperate acts, brave by doing brave acts. And so uh, Joseph Pieper says, unless, unless a person is facing a real evil, it's almost impossible to be just. Unless a person is facing some real evil and choosing to do what's good anyway, he or she is not actually being courageous. So in order for virtue to exist in the person, you have to be willing to face what is evil. And you could use that. You could could talk about that in the spiritual sense, or you could talk about it in the sense of the injustice injustice that you would see in the world. Uh, But if you're not facing that, and then choosing what's good anyway, uh, then then you're not actually living a virtuous life. So facing that will necessitate, by necessity, will require a sacrificial act of the self. It's the only way you get there.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's really good. I I would say since we've talked kind of about your doomer perspective, yeah, and we've talked about the role of suffering in our formation and in living mm-hmm. the good life. Um what's your what's your optimist take? You you kind of talked a little bit about like, you know, an internal perspective, but I guess yeah. I would ask if we could bring it down even to like the most micro level present day, what are some things that that you see that are positive and what are some things that people could implement in their lives today? Yeah. That would help them to cultivate the good life.
1: Sure. Well, it's um, another great question. And I was, thinking about, uh, I was thinking about it beforehand. At the foundational level, it's a way of thinking about existence. So I, in one sense, you have to start there. I mean, depending on who you talk to, and, and you know, Jordan Peterson looms large in a conversation like this because he asks people when they're down and out to start with really simple things. And his most famous, of course, is to make your bed. That's his his most famous, you know, to start with really simple things. Um, and and that's a way to get from, let's say, the lowest point you might find or you might feel that you are in your life to a point of stability. So the question, at least in part is where where does a person find themselves at the present moment? Are they are they at the end of things thinking, I don't know how it could get any worse and so overwhelmed by that feeling that let's say it's hard for them to get out of bed or it's hard for them to get to work every day, or they just don't see the value in going out and meeting up with people or you know, any number of those things. I mean, if you're there and some people are, then it is those very simple things to get you moving and to get you moving in the, in the right direction. And I, I'm going to creep back to where I was earlier, but a lot of what Jordan Peterson and others uh, would talk about, you know, Jocko Willink is another who comes to mind. I listen to his podcast on a regular basis. He's this former Navy seal. And, and uh, when he gives advice, essentially what he says is you need to order your life. You need to, you need to order the things in your life. And, um, I mentioned earlier, but practically speaking, I think one of the very best things that a human being can do if they want their life to improve is to go to bed earlier and get up earlier. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. And you can do any number of studies, excuse me, you can do any number of inquiries into all sorts of studies and any sort of, and you will learn over and over and over again that the body does better when it goes to bed earlier and wakes up earlier. And uh, you see that in something extreme, like the effects of people who work the swing shift. You know, my, my sister was a labor and delivery nurse for a long, long time. And she often worked the 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift. And she did it very well. And, you know, your body adjusts. But when she stopped working that shift and moved on to something, let's say, more uh, circadian, circadian in, in working during the day, her health immediately improved immediately. And she's, I mean, she's one of the healthiest people I know. She's like always eating, you know, organic and she exercised. I mean, she's very conscientious about all of those things, but you can't fake your body into thinking that it's sleeping at night when it isn't. So that would say, that's the number one thing I would say, go to bed earlier, get up earlier. The number two thing, and I think it's going to be pretty controversial is to stop drinking if you are, and people might say, well, you know, that's a personal choice or I only have a drink, you know, when I'm out with friends or okay, that that's fine. It may not be that you have a particular problem with drinking. Uh, but again, you can, you can look at all of the scientific studies that have come out regarding alcohol and none of them are good. None. Oh, what a glass of wine, antioxidants. That's not why people are drinking wine, right? Other than Stanley on the office, right? No, nobody's drinking wine for the antioxidants, right? It's just not happening. So, uh, the the problem, of course, with drinking regularly is that you drink regularly and your body gets used to it, and it makes everything harder, except for the three hours that you're drinking. Everything in your life is harder as a result, and uh, so I would say that's a huge that's a huge thing that people can do. Uh, if you want to get into the real nitty gritty so we can, we can bypass drinking and move on to the next thing, I think having a plan of life can be extremely helpful. If you want to make your life better, have a plan of life. What time, I, what time am I waking up? I'm going to write it down. I'm getting up at 6.30 every morning or whatever it might be. Do I have free time in the morning before I go to school or before I go to work? If I do, what am I doing with that time? Uh, my, maybe my workday is pretty scheduled and ordered and I don't have a lot of flexibility there. Okay, great. But what about when I get home? What am I doing from 4.30 until 10 o'clock? Right. I'm factoring in obvious things like eating, uh, bathing, you know, basic hygiene, but what about that time from 7.00 PM to 9.00 PM that, that the vast majority of people have, what are you doing with that time? If you don't have a plan for what you're doing with it, the the most likely thing you'll do with it is nothing. And I think one of the things that human beings need in order to flourish is to have a real sense of accomplishment. I did a thing. I had a goal, I set a goal, and I accomplished that goal. Otherwise, you're just spinning your wheels, you know? Just spinning your wheels. Um, that's a big thing. Technology, I would say for sure. The screens, the time spent scrolling, uh, the, the time spent worrying about things that you can't control. That's just, that's just a fool's errand, you know. And it's hard because obviously there are things that are out of our control that affect us, of course, and might affect us significantly, whether it be politics or the economy, whatever it might be. Um, and you can't just You can't just bury your head in the sand and pretend like nothing bad is happening, but you're not adding one more moment to your life by worrying. In fact, just the opposite is the case, right? It's the high stress, high anxiety uh, state that, that so many people are constantly right at that edge, just below panic attack, just below freak out just below, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs at the person who cut them off in the car ahead of them. They're, people are just living there. And your body is not happy about that at all. Uh, all the, the chemicals that are released as a result of that affect everything, sleep, the way your body digests food, the way that your muscles tense and relax. All of those things are affected by that. Um, and you just, you can't, I, uh, you just can't pretend in a way like you're not worried about it. If you really are, you have to find different things to, to focus your attention on, you know? Um, so that would say, I would say personal, like in the, in a personal, if, it, if you're just a single person living your life and you're trying to get things going in the right direction, those are some practical things, um, I would say moving out a little bit communally, get married and have kids. If you're called to marriage, get married and have kids. Uh, Why? Because it's the best. It's the best. Human beings are built for community. That's how we're designed. And the, the most important community that you will ever be a part of is your family. You don't get to choose them. You don't get to just decide when you show up. Uh, you don't get to decide who gets to be a part of it. I mean, obviously, when you're an adult and you're you're thinking about marriage, okay, there's there's a different decision, but you don't get to, to choose how many siblings you have. And you and and yet you still you, you you still have to be a part of it. And Chesterton has some great things to say about the family. Um, he says it's the wildest of institutions, it's the freest of institutions because there's no limitations placed on it except by the institution itself. And so Uh, It's a great adventure, huge for men. It forces you to stop being lazy and fat and eating junk food all the time and wasting your time playing video games or looking at porn. You must, if you want to be a good husband and a good dad, die to yourself and live for your wife and kids. Does that sound like a great thing that everyone's jumping, uh, jumping up to do? Probably not when you describe it that way, but that's the irony. The irony of being a husband and dad is that so little time is your own, but you never really end up spending any better time than the time that you spend with your wife and kids. So... If you're, if you're dating someone and you're like, well, we're going to get engaged and we're going to get married soon, but I want to finish school and start the career and we'll make sure I just, who, who cares. Don't worry about that. Your kids don't care if you're poor when you get married. They don't care if you live in an apartment. They don't care. They don't care if you can't, you know, uh, rub two pennies together. Yeah. Do you want to make sure they have food? Yeah, of course you do. But you don't need, you know, you don't need the five bedroom, three and a half bathroom house. You don't need the career. You You, you don't. Um, so feel free, you know, feel free and, and yeah. jump and take a risk and dive in and don't be afraid of it. Uh, that, that, that's, that would say the next commute. And then you want to have a good, you just need to have some friends really, really not colleagues at work that, you know, you, you go to have a happy hour with, uh, not just online friends who you may have close connections with for sure but you need people in your life who you see on a regular basis and spend time with on a regular basis and it's okay if it's just a few people
0: mm-hmm.
1: you don't have to have a lot of friends it's actually it's not a, it's not a great idea because what ends up happening is that you don't get the quality time with any of them that you need and you always feel torn because you're being pulled in many different directions you know some people are more extroverted and introverted and my wife and I are both introverts kind of by nature. So we're we're overwhelmed when when we get into big crowds of of people. So we're very content with you know four or five families who we see on a regular basis and we spend time with and you need that um you need someone other than your spouse to tell you to get your act together. That's really helpful and that's what men friends can having friends who are men for men and and women for women can do is they will, they will call you out in a way that your spouse might not. Uh, they will hold you accountable, especially if you ask them, which is sometimes hard, but it's so important. I mean, if someone's if people if you don't have anyone in your life who's telling you that you're messing up, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Because you no, just that's think, right.
0: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. want to say something about the family real quick. Just yeah. a little a little note, a little side note. I think obviously there are people in history, who have written books, who have accomplished things, who have discovered things and who have made, you know, our lives easier in many ways. Um, Books that have shaped generations and I'm not discounting those at all, but, but the people who do those, those types of things are few and far between. Mm -hmm. And most of us, our biggest contribution to the world to improving the world at all is to have a family, to have children. Like that's most of our, Most of us, that's our greatest contribution to the world. It's not going to be, you know, a a trilogy of books. It's not going to be an invention. It's not going to be any of those things. It's going to be just day in and day out, ordering our lives, raising children, sending them into the world to do the same things that we've modeled. And um, that's that's probably our greatest contribution, really.
1: Yeah. and, And I would dare say it's a greater contribution than most other things that we might think of, you know. Chesterton, of course, one of my favorites of his is um, the most extraordinary thing in the world.
0: An is ordinary, an ordinary
1: man yeah. and an ordinary woman and their own ordinary, ordinary children. children. And people hate hearing that, but it's so true.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's nothing greater that you could invent or create than a human being.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, am I grateful for for antibiotics? Yes. Am I grateful for the internal combustion engine? Yes, of course, of course. Right, um, but
0: but the form but the creation and formation of souls is just like you know that was, that lasts forever.
1: It's infinite. That's exactly it. It's that's it. Right. At some point in time, there won't be any more cars. Mm-hmm. And
0: and you will still won't... die if you take penicillin. Like that's so right. I, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But but to to cooperate with god in the the co-creation of an, of a human being with with an immortal soul i mean yeah. I, I don't know how that can't be at the top of the list now there are people who aren't called to marriage there are people who for any number of reasons don't get married or who are unable to have children and and it, it is not to say in any way that that is a as an is an inferior way of living Nope, not at all I do think there are a lot of people who are who think that the way that they ought to live or the way that they will achieve the greatest happiness is to not have children. That seems to be kind of a growing trend or maybe it's just a growing trend on, on social media, people celebrating their singleness and things like that and it's sad in a way because it's not I I deep down I don't know that that those individuals are sort of selfish and and miserly, and I, I think they're just mistaken. Yeah. That they lack a kind of understanding of w- what it means to be human in the fullest sense. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and 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 sad because all the trips to all the places in all the world will mean nothing by comparison to holding your own child. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. And, yeah. It's hard it's hard to it's hard to, it's, hard. it's almost like if it's it's hard to convince someone of that unless they're already convinced. you mm-hmm. know. So what do we do? We try to live as a witness as best we can. We don't complain about our kids. I complain about my kids way too much, but they're great because I use them as an excuse to get out of everything, which is <laughs> awesome It's the best. But to live a joyful life as a married person, uh, especially with with children, to be a witness to younger people, you know. If parents in you know at a restaurant or uh, out in public, if it's always just long faces and 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 anger and yelling, who would want to live that kind of life, you know? So being a witness to the beauty of the family, I think, is a a tremendous gift to to the community where you find yourself for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, so just to kind of wrap things up because I think we're coming toward the end here, um, mm-hmm. briefly. Um because your background is in literature, uh, yeah. you teach rel- religion and
1: religion religion and history yeah yeah yep
0: what yeah. would you say people should be reading in order to shape themselves um and positively affect those around them what's something what's what's one or two books or one or two authors or just um, a genre, an idea that people should be reading and engaging with.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't necessarily have any novel. No pun intended. That was terrible. And <laughs> answers? I, perfect. I, well, perfect. Thank you. Uh, the more that, well, so I, I recall reading from a book that Anthony Esselin wrote, and he's not the first, probably not the first one to say it, but he said it in a way that stuck with me. He said, the reason that you read books written by people who lived a long time ago and who lived a long time ago, let's say in completely different parts of the world and who lived a long time ago in completely different parts of the world under completely different circumstances, those are the books that you want to read. You actually don't want to read, you don't want to read books where you identify with the characters or you see yourself in the characters. And I know that's a controversial thing to say because it's extremely popular. It's, ex- it's an extremely popular approach to, especially young adult literature mm-hmm, that's, yeah. that's being published today. Well, we want the kids to read it. And if they can see themselves in it, they, they can recognize themselves in it, then they're more likely to read it. True. That's probably true. But, but Anthony Esselin says, no, you wanna read perspectives from people are completely different from you because you can't live their life, but you can vicariously experience what they experienced by reading what they wrote, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, whether it be historical or contemporary. You want to delve into the worlds of other people who aren't like you Mm. so that you become more and more human. You become a better Seer of what real human life is like, so that would be, I would say for sure. Don't buy into, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're thinking, what should I have my children read? But they don't really. These things seem so distant to them, and so okay, that's fine. Will it be as entertaining? That's a tough thing too. You know, we hear it a lot in in schools. I just want them to read. I don't care what they read. I just want them to read. Hmm. It's almost like saying, I just want them to eat. I don't care what they eat. I just, want them, to eat. just want them to eat. That's yeah. right. Twinkies, they'll eat, they'll, they'll eat Twinkies all day. You know, the analogy limps a little bit, like all analogies do, but, but uh, you want, you want your kids, I think to, to get into the meat, get in, you got to dig in deep and, and that's an intellectual exercise for sure. So but you start with the, you know, all that you just start with with fairy tales and Mother Goose, especially with little kids, because they love sing song and rhymey and lyrical mm-hmm. kinds of works. It, it sticks with them in a way that is it's pleasing and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Mother Goose and Grimm, there are lessons in there that are shown, not necessarily told, which is the best way to teach anything. You show it, you don't tell it, because people don't like to be lectured to. People don't want to be moralized to, so you you try and find stories that that show rather than tell. Uh, I have become, as I've gotten older, more of a reader of nonfiction than of fiction, and I would say to my detriment, uh, I've tried in the last couple of years to be a reader of nonfiction by day and a and a reader of fiction by night. So, rather than Reading a social commentary or reading, you know, uh, some historical uh, book or philosophy or theology or something like that at night, I'll try to read more and more novels. Mm-hmm. So uh, it engages a different part of the brain. And as I've gotten older, I think, as I said, to my detriment, my imagination has waned a bit because I, I've spent more and more time reading nonfiction not to say that it's bad in and of itself, but I think letting kids create worlds in their minds is extremely yeah. helpful yeah. Uh, and uh, and good. It's, it is amazing what my kids will remember from the things that we've read and the worlds that they'll create, you know, on their own as a result of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know. yeah,
0: that's so good. Um, I think that you've done such a good job of of talking about about the good life. That's what I think we're all, whether consciously or unconsciously, we're trying to to achieve. We're trying to to find the good life and to live it. Yeah. Um, and I think that you've shared about your homesteading experience, about raising a family, and all the the things that come along with that, yeah. um, suffering, character formation, um, the sacrifice that you have to make, and the grounding like how it grounds you to reality, can helps you to conform to reality is all um, instrumental in living the good life.
1: Mm. Brian,
0: thank you. This is so good.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. this is great. I'm, I appreciate,
0: I'm, I appreciate you coming on our Optimism. Um, yeah. I'm gonna, yeah. I will, I'll end the recording, you and I can chat a little bit after, but thanks so much okay. for coming on.
1: Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, it was a delight, delight to be here.
0: Thank you, Brian.